So this morning we are uh, continuing our first Peter sermon series. If you have a Bible or have one in front of you in the pew, you'll be helped by turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. In the pew Bible, it's on page 1015. So it's almost at the back of the Bible. And this morning we're looking on uh, just one verse, 1 Peter 3 verse 7. This one verse is on how to be a godly husband. So if you are a husband this morning, I'm glad that you're here. If you're a Christian husband, I'm especially glad that you're here. The sermon is obviously going to be relevant to you. But just to make sure that the sermon remains relevant to the rest of you who either are not Christians or are not husbands, here are a few Uh, categories you can find yourself in and so find this sermon still relevant to you. Uh, You might be a wife this morning of a Christian husband, and this sermon for you uh, will instruct you to know what you should expect of your husband. What should you expect of your husband? And if you are a Christian yourself, how to pray for your husband. If you are single today, For the guys, you are not a husband, and for the girls, you have no husband. This sermon can still be instructive to you in several ways, depending on who you are, your life circumstances. For those of you in the room who want to get married one day, this sermon will instruct you how to prepare for a godly marriage. And for those of you who may or may not ever get married, This sermon, I hope, will instruct you how to pray for the married couples in our church. It is a good thing to pray for one another. I don't think I need to prove that to you this morning. But sometimes we don't know how to pray for one another. So I hope that we will be instructed to pray for one another more faithfully in more biblically accurate ways. Now, for all of you here, especially for all the Christians, there are going to be several points from today's text that I think can be extrapolated to your Christian relationships in general. In other words, I don't think that this verse can only be applied within the context of Christian marriage, although that's the first and clearest application. But I think by extension, we can see some of these principles playing themselves out in our Christian relationships in general. For example, when Peter tells husbands to live in an understanding way with their wives and that they should honor their wives because their wives are a co-heir of the grace of life, I think we can take from that an application that we should live with one another generally in an understanding way, and we want to treat one another with honor and in honorable ways because we as Christians are co-heirs of the grace of life together. So in other words, even if you're not a Christian husband and you're here today, I think there are many applications still that can be extrapolated from this text Just briefly, I want to say, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, we are really happy that you're here, and today you might be able to discern two things. Number one, Christians love marriage. We love the idea of marriage. It is a God-ordained institution in our society. We think God gave it to our society. It's beneficial for us. And then secondly, 
I hope you can discern that Christians, even if we don't always have blissful marriages, we do strive for, and to some measure we do attain, by God's grace, marriages that are marked by love, mutual love, mutual joy, and mutual godliness. So I hope you can discern that from the text today. I I have to say, preaching on how to be a godly husband is a bit of a challenge for me. I've been married for uh, 13 and a half years, which means I haven't seen all the seasons of life that marriage can bring. So, So I don't know that I'm the most equipped person to talk on how to live with your wife in every way, in an understanding way. I don't know what temptations you face, husbands, when you've been married for 45 years. I've not, I've not been there. Still, I'm going to focus this morning on what I think Peter's trying to say, and then I'll suggest some applications along the way. I'm not going to be able to cover every possible application point. Sorry about that. Your challenge today as I preach and then as you go to lunch and for the rest of this week, your challenge is to think, think, how will this, how should this play itself out in my life, in my marriage? How can I pray more accurately and more faithfully for one another in light of today's sermon? I don't know all the situations you're facing. For those of you who are married Some of you do have, I think, a very strong marriage where both husband and wife love the Lord, they love one another, they want to follow the Lord, they fight against sin and temptation fairly well. But others of you might have a kind of marriage where the commitment to the Lord may be professed, but doesn't necessarily show itself well in the context of your marriage. The gospel doesn't really have its proper effect in your marriage. And then still others of you may be on the brink of marital disaster, and uh, you may be this morning at your wit's end to know how to live well towards your spouse in the midst of this impending disaster. So I, I imagine in a room this size with all the marriages here that we're at a lot of different places, aren't we? Uh, our marriages are probably in a lot of different states. And so I, I'm not going to be able to give you an application for every possible situation. You'll have to think about it and uh, hear the word of the Lord this morning and find its proper effect in your life. Well, with that being said, let's read our text. I'm going to read chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So we're focusing just on verse 7 this morning, but we're going to get a running start. Chapter 3, verse 1. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening." 
Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Well, as we look at this text this morning, I think it's helpful to remind us where we are in the letter. We are nearing the end of a section uh, that begins all the way back in chapter 2, verse 11. So if you have your Bibles open, I want you to look in chapter 2, verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. And he then talks in verse 12 about keeping your conduct honorable. So he's talking about how you fight inordinate desires inwardly, and then when other people mistreat you, how you should keep your conduct among them uh, honorable. And then if you look in verse 13 of chapter 2, notice it starts, be subject. You see that? Verse 18, servants, be subject. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject. It's the same word, isn't it? So, so you can tell Peter's focus, the dominant idea so far, as he unpacks how we should keep our conduct honorable among other people, especially when they mistreat us, is how we should relate to them in authority over us. And the dominant word, of course, is we should submit to them. Thus far, Peter has said nothing to those who are in authority. He has not addressed the emperor. He has not addressed the governors in the Roman Empire. He has not addressed the masters of the servants. He has said nothing so far to those in social or political power until now, in verse 7 of chapter 3. Even though he only gives one verse to the husbands, He does directly address them, and I think we need to see them as the heads of the households. These husbands were in positions of social authority in their households. Peter does not say to the husbands that they should also submit. Notice that word is actually lacking in verse 7. So he doesn't say submit to others, you husbands. Rather, he urges them to live with godly authority. They are in positions of authority, and he says you need to be godly in your position of authority. Namely, by living in understanding and honorable ways. I want to say briefly, why does he only give one verse to the husbands? You might, you might get the wrong idea here. Maybe you might think, husbands have it all together. It's the wives who get six verses in chapter 3, but the husbands, they only need one because they have it all together, right? I don't think that's the right understanding here. Just because there are a lot of verses given to one subgroup within the congregation doesn't mean that that subgroup stinks. And conversely, just because there's only one verse for another subgroup doesn't mean that that subgroup has it all together. Does that make sense? So I think we have to be careful not to misread uh, why there's only one verse here. I I also don't think it's likely that the churches in uh, modern-day Turkey that Peter's writing to were mostly female. 
I don't think that's why there's only one verse to the husbands, because there's just not that many of them. I think it's likely there's a pretty good mixture, actually, of male and female Christians in the marriage context in these churches. A better answer, why does he only give one verse to husbands, is because he's, his focus in the letter is on Christians who are suffering. And mainly, that's going to be Christians in positions not of authority, but underneath someone else's authority. I think that's mainly why he addresses so much the servants in chapter 2 and the wives in chapter 3. These Christians, as far as I can tell, were suffering various forms of sporadic persecution. This is difficult for us to understand in some ways. Because Christianity is an entrenched religion in our country. But back then, Christianity was not the main religion of the Roman Empire. It wasn't even a recognized religion. It was seen as a superstitious and newfangled sect that was a threat to the gods of Rome and Roman society. So, Christians were often ostracized and slandered, mistreated in various ways, Christians, by and large, were not in positions of power, generally. They were not generally in positions of authority. They were generally in positions of weakness, socially and politically. And so in light of this, Peter's focus throughout the letter is really on addressing how should you live when you're suffering unjustly. His focus is not so much on what godly authority looks like, We get a hint of it here in our verse this morning. He's going to address elders in chapter 5, so he's going to talk about godly authority there again. But his focus mainly isn't on godly authority, but how we should react when we are suffering unjustly. So, I think that's why we only get one verse uh, to the husbands. With that, let's jump into the text. The big idea uh, for this morning is that husbands should treat their wives in understanding and honorable ways, which is the necessary fruit of the gospel. And I want to hone in on those two words, understanding and honorable. Those are the the key words here. So how should we treat our wives, we husbands? In understanding ways and in honorable ways. And then at the very end of the sermon, I'm going to say, I think this is a necessary fruit of the gospel. So point number one, we should treat our wives with understanding. Notice verse seven again says, likewise husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. What does that mean to live in an understanding way with your wives? I think it's likely that Peter is thinking of all of your life as a husband toward your wife when he says, live together with them in these ways. I don't think he's thinking of just one aspect of your life as a husband. He's thinking of all of your life as a husband toward your wife. He's thinking of the entirety of your domestic life with regard to your marriage And this is then kind of a one phrase, one verse, holistic admonition to the Christian husbands. In other words, I think Peter is talking about the kinds of things like this. When you come home from work, you husbands, how do you treat your wife? When you parent your children, or if you're a grandparent, you're 
interacting with those children alongside of your wife, how do you treat your wife in those situations? In the bedroom, how do you treat your wife? With your friends and different social contexts, how do you speak about your wife? When you are at church, how do you treat your wife? When you think about your future plans and what you want to do with your life, how does your wife fit into those thoughts and strategies? In other words, when Peter says, live together in an understanding way, I think he's envisioning all of your life as a husband. How should you treat your wife? And he says, in an understanding way. By the way, I want to say kind of on the side, I think it's pretty clear from this verse that God cares about the intricacies of your everyday life as a husband. In other words, he cares what you do when you come home from work, right? He cares how you parent or grandparent. He cares how you think about your wife and feel about your wife. God cares. When it comes to our Christian lives, there's no such thing as something that's off limits to God. There's no part of our hearts that is so private that we say, God, you don't, you don't know about this and can't speak into this part of my life. I will do as I see fit. I think Peter is pushing back a little against that and saying, actually, the entirety of your husband life is under the rule and the lordship of Jesus Christ. All of our lives is lived before God including our lives as husbands. So what does he mean when he says we should live in an understanding way? I think he means at least two things. Number one, we should understand things about God. And then number two, we should understand things about ourselves and our wives. Okay, it's kind of vertical knowledge, horizontal knowledge. So with regard to that vertical knowledge, I think Peter throughout the letter essentially organizes Christian conduct along that vertical axis of our relationship to God. We keep our conduct honorable among others. Why? So that God will be glorified. We are subject to other people for the Lord's sake, chapter 2 says. Chapter 2 also talks about us as a servant of God. We fear God alone in the letter. We respect others, of course, but we fear God alone. So I think, I think that here, husbands are being encouraged by Peter to live toward their wives in a way that is righteous before God. In an understanding way. Namely, you need to understand what does God want you to do as a husband. In other words, if you don't know what God thinks about how to be a husband, you will not live in an understanding way. Does that make sense? So you have to live, I think, first of all, in the knowledge or in the understanding of the will of God. Otherwise, you will not treat your wife in a godly way. But second, we also need to think about our knowledge of of ourselves and our wives. So if if we want to live in understanding ways, in God-pleasing ways, it's really helpful if you know your own strengths and weaknesses. And it's really helpful if you know your wives' strengths and weaknesses. 
We need to know ourselves well enough and our wives well enough to know how we can best serve them. Husbands, we need to know the desires, the delights, the things that please our wives. We need to know these things. I'm not saying Christian husbands should give their wives whatever their wives want. That's not what I'm saying. I do think, rather, Christian husbands should consider how to serve their wives for the sake of their wives' godliness. In that sense, live in an understanding way. How does God want me to live toward them? And part of that means I have to know them, right? You have, you have to actually know one another in order to serve one another well. So here are a few questions for you husbands to ask. How can I live toward my wife in such a way that will cause her to delight herself more in the Lord and to obey him in more faithful ways? What can I do to increase her reliance on the Lord? What can I do to help remind her of her need for grace and forgiveness? And what can I do to remind her of the glory of the gospel? So, so in other words, you can tell these questions aren't, how can I get her to like me more sort of questions, right? They're how can I live toward her in such a way that conforms her more into the image of Christ? That is living in an understanding way, both vertically and then horizontally as well. So these questions commend Bible intake and communication. Obviously, you have to know the the word of God to know the will of God. So Bible intake. Are you you husbands, are you regularly here on Sundays putting yourself under the preaching of the word? Are there other chances throughout the week that you can let the word of Christ dwell in you richly? There's little chance that you'll live in an understanding way if the word of God isn't driving the way you treat your wife. But then also, husbands, we have to communicate well, don't we? We have to communicate with our wives. We have to actually talk with our wives. We have to be honest with our wives. We have to say what we mean. And we have to mean what we say. Perhaps, you wives... You can help us in this way. Typically, you're good at communication, right? It's the guys who need some help here. So, so maybe it's the other way around in your marriage. I don't know. The point is, you need to actually communicate well in order to serve one another well. And husbands, this commends asking the questions I read you a moment ago. Ask your wives those questions and see what they say. What does Peter mean in verse 7 when he says, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Did you see that phrase? She, she is the weaker vessel. I actually think, this isn't a huge decision, but I actually think that phrase weaker vessel goes better in the translation with how to live well in an understanding way toward your wife. And one of the ways we live well in an understanding way toward our wives is we know that she is the weaker vessel, or maybe a better word is she's the weaker partner, right? In what sense is she weaker? 
I don't think the Bible teaches that women are weaker morally than men. I don't think it suggests that women are more gullible than men or less courageous than men. I, I think, and I agree with a lot of commentators here, it seems to me that he's just thinking in terms of physical strength. Women are just weaker, generally, than men. Perhaps Peter has in mind women's lack of social entitlement, weak in that sort of sense, but most likely, I think he's thinking, at least at the very least, husbands generally are physically stronger than their wives. That's not always true. We can think of exceptions, but that's a general rule, okay? I I think we can agree with that. Generally, husbands are physically stronger. They are the stronger, she is the weaker. Peter is concerned that Christian husbands will live in an understanding way such that they know they're physically stronger, they know she is physically weaker, and that they therefore will not take advantage of their position of even physical strength toward her. Do you know what I'm saying? So, so, so know that, Peter is saying. Know that about yourself. You husbands are stronger. Don't take advantage of that. Use the utmost caution not to take advantage of your wives physically. I'm not telling you anything you don't know when I say it's possible for husbands to mistreat their wives physically. Whether it's sexual or otherwise. Peter, I think in this verse, is reminding us that any kind of abuse or domestic violence has absolutely no place in a Christian marriage. It has no place. Christian husbands, beware. You're stronger, I think is what he's saying. They are weaker. Do not use your position of strength as an advantage for you. I want to be really clear here. The nature of sin is that it takes what is good and perverts it. At Trinity, we are complementarian, which is a fancy word, which means, among other things, that we believe the Bible teaches that husbands are the head of the family, the head of the household, and that wives should submit to their husbands. If you don't believe that, then maybe you were here last week. If you weren't, listen to the sermon from last week, as Josh did a great job unpacking 1 Peter 3, 1 to 6. I think it's pretty clear along these lines. That we believe, that headship submission model is God's good, beautiful design for the family. It's not the product of Genesis 3 and sin in the world. Still, the way sin works is it is possible for a complementarian husband to pervert godly headship such that a husband can actually insert what's really a domineering and dictatorial style of leadership in the home and call it godly headship. It's not. It's domineering headship. It's dictatorial headship. It's not servant leadership kind of headship. So at Trinity, we're complementarian, but don't get the wrong idea about that. It's a good, beautiful thing when headship is godly and submission is godly. Peter is warning against a perversion here of a husband's headship. Don't use 
your position of authority and strength as an opportunity to get your way. And I want to say, I think Josh mentioned this last week, but I want to echo it again here. If there is any abuse going on in this church, our elders want to know about it. So don't don't keep sin hidden in the dark. We think sin needs to be brought to the light. So that's the first point. Husbands should live or treat their wives in understanding ways. The second point is that word honorable. We should treat our wives in honorable ways. This is the the second part of verse 7. So the first part says, live with your wives in an understanding way. The second part says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. So in this part of the verse, Peter urges us as Christians to live in honorable ways toward our wives, such as is fitting for a co-heir of grace. Showing honor is not deferring or submitting. Showing honor is treating your wife in such a way as you think she is immensely valuable. Honor her. You show show her that she is honorable. She has value in your sight. In other words, you think highly of her. Why would a husband see his wife as immensely valuable? Because she never sins, right? No, that's not what it says. (laughs) That's not what it says. But it does say because she is a co heir. Of the grace of life. So her value, I think there are other things we can say here about human dignity, but here in this verse, the value, the high honor that you place on her is a high honor that you as a Christian husband, you also have. You are an heir of the grace of life. And Peter's point is, so is she, right? She is too. Therefore, show her honor. I think the grace of life phrase in verse 7 shows eternal life is a gift. It's grace, isn't it? The gift character is, is, is clear. No one earns eternal life by their good works. Husbands and wives are sinners saved by grace. No one is righteous in themselves. That's true for women, just like it's true for the men. But then the flip side is true. Just like the men can inherit God's saving grace that brings us eternal life, so also can women inherit saving grace that brings eternal life. Women are not second-class heirs. They don't play second fiddle to the men, but they're Co-heirs is what verse 7 says. They're with their husbands as heirs. It's interesting here, just as headship and submission, I think, are found in verses 1 to 6 of this chapter, so there's equality between the husbands and the wives in verse 7. The wife is described true as the weaker partner So there's distinctions in this verse between husband and wives, stronger, weaker, I think head, submission. But the wife is also called the co-heir 
of the grace of life. So husbands and wives, we can put it this way, are distinct. They have distinct God-given roles within the context of their marriage. And they are equal as persons in God's sight and are capable of being full and equal recipients of God's saving grace. Therefore, husbands, let's show the right honor to our wives. The honor of the priesthood in 1 Peter 2 is a shared honor between male and female believers in Jesus. And so I think one of the ways that we can show honor to one another is we treat our wives as though she is, like you are, a priest before God. You treat your wife in that way, a priest before God. In 1842, I'm sorry for a really old reference this morning. In 1842, there was a preacher named John Angel James who preached a sermon entitled The Marriage Ring, in which he said, I'm going to quote just a bit of it to you. He said, Conjugal affection should have the same character. It should be at all times and in all places alike. The same at home as abroad, in other persons' houses as in our own. Has not many a wife to sigh and exclaim, Oh, that I were treated in my own house with the same tenderness and attention as I receive in company. In other words, John Angel James is saying, be consistent and uniform in the way in which you show honor to your wife. Don't just honor her in front of others, but then when you're alone in the house with her, you don't honor her. James is saying, honor her everywhere she goes. Don't do it for show. Honor her because she is a co-heir of the grace of life. So both in public and husbands in private, honor her as a co-heir of the grace of life. And that leads me to my third and final point, which is that husbands should treat their wives in understanding and honorable ways, which is, thirdly, the necessary fruit of the gospel. The necessary fruit of the gospel. And this comes from the very last phrase of verse 7. Verse 7 says at the very end, so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? So, So treat your wife in this way so that you'll pray well, I think is what he's saying. So that your prayers will be heard, not hindered. Now, some have taken this phrase to mean that husbands and wives should pray together. Peter thinks that they'll pray together. And if a husband is mistreating his wife, those prayer times aren't going to be very good. Which is true, right? (laughs) If there's not very much marital affection going on, praying together is not going to go over so well, typically, right? Now, I think it is a really good thing for husbands and wives to pray together, But I don't think that's what Peter's thinking of here. I think Peter is thinking, he's actually warning the husbands not to presume on God's grace. Don't presume. It's a kind of warning passage. Don't presume on God's grace. If you give yourself over to sin, 
in this case, mistreating your wife, then you should know God isn't mocked. He's not mocked. One of the reasons I think this is right is because a few verses later, if you, if you have your Bible still open, look down the page to verse 12. Chapter 3, verse 12, where he's quoting from Psalm 34. And he says in verse 12, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Do you hear that? So so that's verse 12. I think it's likely that Peter's saying essentially the same thing here in verse 7 with regard to the way husbands treat their wives. Those who persist in sin, God's face is against them, verse 12 says. His face is against those who do evil like mistreating their wives, right? And his ears are open to the prayer of the righteous, namely those who treat their wives in understanding and honorable ways. So it seems to me that there's a warning in verse 7. Don't think that God will hear your prayers, that your prayers will have any effect if you persist in your sin. I think verse 7 is essentially a kind of warning passage that reminds us husbands that our lives at home should be done in accordance with our profession of faith. If you say you're a Christian, then be a Christian husband, is what he's saying. Our lifestyle should accord with our profession. I don't think he's teaching works righteousness here. I don't think he's saying, look, if you treat your wife well, God will accept you. That's legalism, isn't it? That's not the gospel. I think Peter's saying, if you genuinely belong to the Lord, that will necessarily show itself in your everyday domestic life. If you really belong to the Lord, that'll show itself. As the old Protestant dictum says, a person is justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is never alone. In other words, if the root is genuine, so will be the fruit. And if you don't have fruit, take heed. Take heed. God isn't mocked. If the fruit isn't there, the root isn't either. God does not turn a blind eye to persistent sin. So husbands, I think Peter wants to say, don't presume on God's grace as though it gives you license to persist in sin toward your wife. Now before we close, I think this is a great chance for us to remember the gospel. So briefly, let me remind you of what you already know No one in this room this morning is sinless. Do you know that? No one is righteous in God's sight by their own efforts. Our only hope, and this is true for every one of us, our only hope is Jesus the righteous one who died for our sins like our sins of mistreating our wives. He died for sins like that. He died on our behalf and in our place. He was raised from the dead on the third day so that we might be declared righteous in his sight. And we receive this free gift 
by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone. And we need to remember this gospel message because I think actually this gospel gives us strength domestically. It actually gives us strength to treat our wives well. Christ suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And when he brings us to God, he gives us new strength to live in new, fresh ways, such that our marriages are transformed by the power of the gospel. So some of you husbands right now, are feeling the guilt arising in your hearts from the ways you know you've sinned against your wife. And I want you to remember the gospel. We're getting ready to take communion together, which is a gospel meal, isn't it? No one eats and drinks who has been sinless. Everyone eats and drinks who has sinned. But they come to the table because they find fresh hope for forgiveness at the cross of Jesus Christ. So if that's you, you husbands, if you feel that guilt arising, find hope this morning in the gospel. Find hope of forgiveness and find hope for new strength to treat your wife in honorable and understanding ways. Let's pray together.